Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Hello, Gabe Dowrick. That's me. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we, as always, ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about an insecure man who meets a confident stranger who looks exactly like him. It's Enemy versus The Double. Let the clone games begin, Gabe. So let's kick up this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 14th of March, 2014, Enemy was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. A man seeks out his exact lookalike after spotting him in a movie. So Gabe, tell me, did you originally catch Enemy when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Well, was this released at the cinema? I think it got a really, really, really brief release in Australia. But looking at the box office figures we'll get to later in the pod, this film wasn't released widely around the world with a theatrical release. Yeah, I mean, I saw it on DVD. and. Without getting too much into a review per se, but I don't think I liked it all that much when I first watched it. But both of these movies, I think, are the type of movies where how you watch them or how you're feeling when you watch them really makes a difference to how much you like them or how well you engage with them. Because I found the second time I watched it, and I've actually watched Enemy a bunch of times. I liked it more and more. And now, weirdly, it's one of the movies, this is going to sound kind of weird, there's this term, right, called hypnagogia, which is the space between sleep and awake. I find it is a phenomenally good movie to be watching while you're trying to exist in the transitional space between wakefulness and sleep. Why is that? Is it the hypnotic music or the storyline? The whole bunch of movies I like putting on kind of as I'm nodding off to sleep and sort of not to go to sleep too, but I don't know. It's a weird thing to describe. Like, for instance, um, Tree of Life or Fire Walk With Me, the original Wicker Man, even weirdly Stuart Gordon's Dagon and then Denis Villeneuve's Enemy. They're all movies that you're sort of half awake and half asleep while watching them. You might wake up and catch some frames or hear some of the score or dialogue in in the back of your mind while you're sort of just drifting off. And I sort of feel like it's really great for trying to encourage, like, you know, lucid thought or something. So weirdly, I really like this movie for that. That's fascinating. And that actually taps into the Gabe Dowrick model for had experience classic cinema. Normally, you'll refer to it watching it as sober (laughs) or drunk. But it's actually a third- Viewing experience. That's right. Hypnagogia. <laughs> Hypnagogia. Hypnagogia? I don't know exactly how to pronounce the word for it. But yeah, and there's some movies that are just really great. And they're often this type of movie. They're not hard, dialogue-driven, plot-driven movies. They're, they're movies of visuals and sound. So as I watched it more and I watched it more in that mode, I liked it more. Gotcha, gotcha. What about you? Are you all about the Hypnagogia? <laughs> Well, when it comes to- here's the embarrassing thing for me, is that I actually didn't see this film for the first time until actually watching it in preparation for this podcast recording, which is really odd for one big reason, is that I'm a huge fan of Delhi Villeneuve. Is that how you pronounce his name? Denny We call him Dennis. We're Australians. Dennis. Dennis. Like Dennis Lilly. Right. Denny. 
So, I bought this actually on sale on DVD pretty soon after it was released around the world in the cinema. So, probably around 2014. I've just had it sitting on on the uh, shelf, which goes to show how quickly the world has moved since that you now essentially can't buy DVDs as easily as you could. And maybe it was because it was always there on the shelf. I thought, oh, I'll get to it at some other stage. But for some reason, I just always find the premise of a film involving clones to be a little bit cliché. Well, it's not really clones, though, is it? Well, we'll get to that. But you know, It's not replicant with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, that's right. I really enjoyed, um, what's a film? With a moon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sam Rockwell. I mean, great film. But I do feel that the film, which has the concept about someone discovering a version of themselves, can get pretty tired and you've got to try and find an innovative way to tell that story. And Surrogates with Bruce Willis wasn't an example of how to do that. Yeah, no. Often it feels like it's appealing to an actor's ego. Like, JCVD has done it a bunch of times. And you feel like someone's gone up to him and been like, hey, Jean-Claude, you could play two guys in this movie. You joke, but I've actually thought to myself many times before. In fact, I think I might have even pitched it to you as a screenwriting strategy to try and write a film for the ego of a particular actor who gets the opportunity to basically play another version themselves, which is essentially what Face Off is, where John Travolta and Nicolas Cage are playing each other and themselves at different points in the movie. It's different, but it's sort of similar. It's basically a great opportunity for an actor to flex. Totally. Although, I mean, this has enemy, I suppose, artistic ambitions go beyond Eddie Murphy playing the clumps. Not that there's anything wrong with Eddie Murphy playing the clumps. I do actually wonder when you mention that whether you're trying to convince me of that or just making a point. Because Fuck no, there's great skill in Eddie Murphy doing that. Oh, no, I it's agree. It's not easy to play. Look, trust me, I've considered many times before having a separate podcast called The Skills of Eddie Murphy Putting on Makeup and a Fat Suit and Playing Different Characters. That's another podcast for another day. Totally. And it's amazing you got 376 episodes out of it. I agree. Anyway. Okay, so later on, on the 9th of May 2014, the double was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. A clerk in the government agency finds his life take a turn for the horrific with the arrival of a new co-worker who is both his exact physical double and his opposite. Confident, charismatic, and seductive with women. So, Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched The Double. Again, did this get a theatrical release in Australia? Yeah, I don't think it did. And I think these two films were at that wave of around 2013, 2014, where we started having these amazing films, which were good in their own right, but also actually had a lot of talent above the line, like reputable directors, cast, writers. And we were going to that kind of point in time where streaming started really accelerating and the art house market started plummeting, and these types of films were sort of on the the beginning of that transitional period, and so weren't getting those international releases, which they might have got, say, 10 years beforehand. Yeah. I mean, it may well have got released into art house cinemas here, and for whatever reason, I was seeing Fast and Furious 5 instead that weekend. I don't know. But um, no, I saw this the first time on DVD. And I think I've only watched it once since. And kind of unfairly, I think, and this is actually very unfair to this particular movie because I guess in a way it should be judged in its own rights. Because I like Enemy a lot, I weirdly like this one less, which is not fair to this movie or to Richard Iode (laughs) because why should that be the case? But yeah, this one gets far less of a spin for me. 
What about you? Did you see it at the movies? Yeah, this also falls into the category of another film I saw in preparation for this podcast. Had you bought it on DVD previously and it's been sitting on your shelf? No, no, no. This one I just watched in preparation for this. I'd always been turned off from seeing it because it came out at the same time as Enemy. And of course, being the whole inspiration on this podcast, I thought, well, why would I see that film as well when Enemies by Denny, who I love, if I haven't seen Denny's film, I'm certainly not going to see the Jesse Eisenberg version. So I was never attracted to see it because it just felt like overkill of double clone doppelganger movies. So I caught this just, yeah, at home on TV and we'll get there. But it wasn't as good for me as Enemy. And perhaps we should, before we start our review, maybe we should just jump into a bit of a Hollywood shallow dive into the history of these two films. Sounds good. What do you think? Let's do it. So let's start with Enemy, which was released first, if you go by the US box office release. So Enemy is actually an original story. No, Is it based on a novel? That's right. I'm just testing you. Well, it's no. based on a story called The Double. <laughs> yeah, this, this Jose, is not confusing at all. <laughs> I know. By Jose Saramago and adapted by Javier Golon. In contrast, The Double is based on a novella called The Double by- How do you pronounce his name? Fyodor, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Perfect. Mate, didn't you study Dostoevsky in school? No, no, I didn't. No, and that no. book's what about eighteen nineties? Apparent, I think, isn't it? I, to be, I haven't read this one. Yeah, apparently it's the quite movie. dense, quite esoteric. <laughs> yeah. What's the movie? It's, the movie was shorter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't appear from doing a bit of uh, internet sleuthing that there was any connection with these films being made at the same time. I mean, let's face it: based on the subject matter, I can't imagine Hollywood esque studios or Hollywood racing to make these films at the same time. This one just seems to fall into that category of being an absolute coincidence. And, you know, the concept of a film centred around a doppelganger has been as old as the 1890s novella. And so, I guess, like some ideas, like many of those diehard concepts of, you know, an ordinary person caught up in an extraordinary circumstance, this just seems to be a an example of a popular idea being made twice at the same time. I guess it's been, what, 10 years since Moon? So this was, these two films were made five years after Moon. So... Not that long. It's not so much that they're two movies where an actor just plays multiple roles. I mean, they're both movies where a character discovers that there's a another person who looks exactly like them, but that person possesses very specific traits. They're not timid. They're much more outgoing, popular. So, yeah, I mean, it's not just like, oh, the year before, Tom Hanks was in Cloud Atlas and he played seven roles in that or whatever. It seems very funny and strange that they are both riffs on very similar ideas. Yeah, you're 100% right. It's a case where, and this is, I guess, the interpretation of both films, whether the clones are projections of a dream version of the protagonist self or an idolised version of them. Yeah, Because it does seem too coincidental that they're both nervous Nellies, they're both insecure, uptight, yeah, anxious people, and the doppelgangers they meet just are entirely different. The way they carry themselves, the way they speak, they look the same and they share some personality traits, but in many other ways, they are the opposite. So let's jump to a review, shall we? Starting with Enemy. Walk me through Enemy. You've seen it several times, which infers you do like it a lot. Tell me 
what floats your boat about enemy? I mean, look, I do like it, but like I said, I like it specifically for a. I don't come home on a Friday night after having a few tinnies and go, oh shit, I'm going to throw on enemy. That's a good time. I love the photography. I love the art direction. I guess something that I like, and it's true for both movies, is I like that it is. I don't know how would you describe it? it's um both of the movies sort of exist in their own world with their own rules and those rules aren't literal. I find so many movies these days are incredibly literal. You know, they set up very specific rules and you need to understand those. They make great pains so that audiences will absolutely understand those rules and there's no kind of dream logic to them or open-endedness. And I guess what I really like about both of these movies, but, you know, given that I like one more than the other, I really like that about Enemy. I think there's, you know, apart from, you know, David Lynch and very few filmmakers get to do that. So that's something I really like about it. I mean, look, frankly, I don't fucking know if I have any idea what happens in this movie or what it's about. I might be thick as fuck, you know, but I love that about it. And then, you know, Danny Villeneuve, he's a master craftsman, isn't he? He is an incredible filmmaker. I mean, this film could have been made as a really low-budget indie debut film. I mean, I think there are about five characters on screen. But what he does with that small cast and just existing setting, like he's shot on location ostensibly for most of the film, it's spectacular. He uses music very, very well. His choice of camera angles and editing with his sound composer and editor is just outstanding. It really suits this type of story, which is essentially, it's a thriller, right? I mean, if you define this by genre. I guess so. Esoteric thriller? Mister- yeah. I mean, it certainly has elements of mystery, mystery yeah. and, and drama. I mean, I mean, it's not a thriller like Prisoners might be a thriller or whatever, but yeah, I guess so. I mean, Maybe I it's guess a it's thriller hard to get down mystery. to what it is, isn't it? But yeah, thriller, mystery, sure, we could call it that. Yeah. I mean, just the colour palette of the film starts out as being a film which seems very subdued, a bit depressing, like it's very heavily graded with that kind of yellow sepia look. Yeah. It appears it could be set any time, just in terms of the technology that, that that's focused on in the film. This film feels like it could have been made 20 years ago or 10 years in the future. Yeah, but weirdly- seems quite timeless. Much less self-consciously than The Double, which really tries to do that mishmash of settings, whereas- Enemy is much more sort of subdued in its the possibility of when it's set. Yeah. It might well be because, like, that brutalist architecture that he shoots a lot of the scenes at, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but, you know, they're real locations and that choice makes it sort of feel kind of timeless in that way. Yeah, 100%. It was shot actually, um, I think, Toronto, Canada. Right. You know, using local cities in his own country of origin. And it's great because you had this juxtaposition of, like, these kind of quite boring, partially dilapidated apartment blocks, including the one where his doppelganger lives, then contrasted to these really modern glass round buildings, which is just visually quite spectacular. And you're right, this film is very much set in the present, whereas the double really leans into an absurdist world and is much closer to Brazil. Yeah, totally. I mean, if the double is closer to Brazil, then I reckon Enemy is closer to Prisoners, like in terms of being more naturalistic. Yeah. Prisoners oh, yeah. was a film made around the same time by the same director, by Denis Villeneuve. 
What I like about Enemy is that it's not afraid to keep you on tenderhooks. Like, it is very mysterious. And look, should we just cut to the chase and you have to spoilers and discuss what the hell happens at the end? I was hoping you'd tell me. Okay. So, listeners, for those of you who haven't watched Enemy, we're going to spoil a few kind of surreal moments in the film. And having said that, we could actually express what these are and it wouldn't actually change your enjoyment of the film, I don't think. Yeah, it's definitely a movie where, frankly, spoilers don't really matter because plot's not so much the point. Like Exactly, yeah. So, essentially, at the end of the film, when Adam, who's the insecure character at the very end of the film, one of his last lines are is that he seems to gain confidence as he's talking, yelling sort of from one room to the next to his, I guess, second pregnant wife which was Anthony's wife, who's walked into the next bedroom. He says, oh, I'm thinking of going out tonight. And he kind of says it as both a statement and a question, almost testing her as to whether that's okay. And the way he says it, to me, he says it like he's very much part of Anthony coming through, like he's being cheeky, like he's testing her, like he wants to go out. And for someone to say that, a father-to-be with a pregnant wife, it's potentially inflammatory. She doesn't respond. He says it again. And this is after Anthony has been apparently killed in a car crash. Exactly. And also Adam's wife, so first wife, so to speak. Yeah, his wife. Helen is Anthony's girlfriend? See, this is the confusing part about the film. So, Anthony is the (laughs) doppelganger. Yes. And Helen is the doppelganger's pregnant wife. And Mary, played by Melanie Laurent, is Adam's girlfriend, who's not pregnant. Yes, She's named sorry, Mary. Correct. Okay. So, Adam says, I'm thinking of going out. No response. Says it again, calls out, no response from Helen, who in these final scenes essentially become his new partner. And he walks to the next room, opens the door, and there is a giant spider, like a funnel-web spider or a tarantula, giant as in like six foot, eight foot tall, that looks at him through the open doorway and kind of like for a moment sort of scurries to the side or kind of flares its uh, mouth for a moment. And the film just cuts to black. So, stepping back, there's also a few surreal images in the film. One is actually a very obvious image of a giant spider, like something out of War of the Worlds, walking across the cityscape. And there's lots of other types of spider iconography, like in the preceding scene when the doppelganger Anthony and Adam's girlfriend have a car crash and die, the camera kind of zooms into the windscreen that has sort of like that sort of fractured, it's spidered, the glass is spidered, it looks looks like a web. Mm. You also have images where the camera pans up and all of the wires across the road from trams or electricity wires resemble a spider's web. So, Oh, in the very start of the film as well, there's a scene, this really surreal scene that seems to be something like the eyes wide shut sex party meets David Lynch where a woman in high heels goes to step on a giant spider for the entertainment of all these mysterious guests. And either Adam or Anthony is amongst those men. Exactly. So, what's your interpretation as to the final shot where the pregnant wife slash girlfriend, Helen- has been replaced by an eight-foot spider. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you've got to sort of decide in both of these movies in a way. The two other doubles 
are they the same person and they just sort of represent sides of somebody's personality? Like, is Adam and Anthony the same person and it's about one part of him kind of dying as he's killed in a car crash or whatever and he's trying to reconcile this life that he's living where he has a wife and a girlfriend, you know, and is somehow also acting in movies or whatever? Or are they actually separate people and it's just a sort of surreal movie about someone who meets someone who looks exactly like themselves? Because I guess it could be either depending on how you want to interpret it, right? Oh, exactly. What's your interpretation? Let's start with Enemy. What's your interpretation? Is Anthony a projection, a figment of Adam's imagination and and both insecurities and idolism? Or is Anthony a living, breathing, separate being? I mean, I think in both films, but Enemy specifically for the- Now he's- They are- the one person. But that being said, he definitely does stuff as one that the other doesn't necessarily know about or how would he be doing these things. So, I like that it's not definitive. That There is no- People are always trying to solve movies in a way. And even doing some research about this movie, it seems like Denny himself says it could be one or the other. I like it that Adam and Anthony are the same person, and it's about him coming to terms with some part of his persona, figuring out who he is. What about you? How do you read? Do you read it that way, or do you go the other way? I interpret it now, having dived down into many Reddit threads, which I had not done in a long, long time in relation to films, because most films these days are so literal, they aren't ambiguous, and that's just a nature, I think, of increasingly conservative business-focused filmmaking where there just cannot be a risk at all in the eyes of producers or distributors that the audience won't get it or the audience won't agree on the ending or the subtext of a film. Yeah, that's right. Films with ambiguity always end up with, what do they call it, like cinema score or something, with very low cinema score things. Like people don't like walking out of a movie and being like, well, I guess I have to think about this now. <sighs> yeah, totally. When I think of CineScore testing, I always think of Homer Simpson walking out of a shopping mall cinema, scratching his head, scratching his nuts, scratching his ass, and going, I didn't get it. You know, like, that drives me insane. Yeah, so, yeah. I agree with you. I also enjoy films, particularly now when the world has become so literal and there isn't the opportunity to have ambiguity, which I think is a great sign of art and interpretation. Other forms of art, like fine art, it's very much about your interpretation of the art and there is no wrong interpretation. That's sort of like the relationship between the artwork, the artist and the viewer. But in filmmaking, it's increasingly less common and I do like it in this film. However, I don't like it when the filmmakers themselves don't know Now, Ah, if they're just saying that and they're just saying, look, I know the answer, but what did you think? Totally fine with that. But if they don't know themselves, then the whole thing falls apart. Because inevitably, if they don't know themselves, you are going to find instances where the logic doesn't stand up because they didn't know when they were making it which way they were leaning. So, you can still be ambiguous, but you know you're deliberately creating the ambiguity And you'll be creating, I think, consistent ambiguity. But if you don't know when you make it, I think that's BS myself. BS. And, yeah, in this film here, there are inconsistencies. So, when I dive into many, many red 
subthreads. You know, I read different things. Like one was a comment about how the scar on Adam and Anthony's stomach, they both share the same scar, yeah. which suggests that they're not twins, for example. That's the first thing you think, are they twins? But it's exactly the same scar. And one theory was that takes perhaps from the mythology or religion of the Bible where Adam had a rib taken out of him by God and Eve was crafted from it. So that's kind of like a you know a good theory there. And there's other moments where I think when Adam's girlfriend Mary is having sex with Anthony passionately and it seems that neither Adam and Mary had much of a sex life beforehand and so she's suddenly now enjoying this new sex life and she notices the wedding band mark on Anthony's hand, which then makes her really freak out, essentially, and that leads to them fighting the car and the car crashing and both Anthony and Mary dying. So that suggests that they are different characters. But I think ultimately, based on the ending and based on these characters being the opposites, I do think that Anthony is a projection of Adam's insecurities and idolism. And one Reddit thread I read which I give credit to, and that's not an expression you hear very often, is that Adam is a guy in a relationship. So he's married for a start. He's got this kind of job that doesn't inspire him. What he's doing is he's acting on the side to try and fulfill his creative aspirations, but his day job, which he's not satisfied by, is being a university college lecturer. And he's freaking out about being emasculated as being a father going forward and losing that single lifestyle. And the big giveaway, I think, is when he goes to see his mum. And that's the part where his mum, played by Isabella Rossellini, makes some comments which is basically describing Anthony as much as Adam. I think she comments that he should just give up this whole acting thing and also makes a comment about his infidelity. Yeah, that's right. I think based on that, Mary is the consciously, or ironically, subconsciously non-pregnant version of Helen, his wife. She's, they're both attractive women, but uh, Melanie's, you know, an attractive blonde. Are you saying that he actually only has the two women or also non-identical doubles? You're not saying that, right? I'm suggesting my theory, and this is the whole point, I mean, being ambiguous is up for grabs. My theory is that Adam is real, Anthony is a projection. Mm Mm-hmm. Helen is real, and Mary is a projection as well. Oh, see, I agree with the first part that the Adam and Anthony, but I always took it, I guess I took it that that at various stages the women kind of don't recognise versions of either Adam or Anthony, that that was just them not recognising behaviours in Adam, but that both of them were two that both Sarah Gaddon and Melanie Laurent were two separate characters and one was sort of a wife and one was a mistress. But um, but like you say, it's totally interpretive, I suppose. Yeah, that makes sense as well. I think the funny thing is Adam lives in this slick house and that's where Helen, the pregnant character, lives. That part is odd because- If Adam aspired to the acting and the single lifestyle or the lifestyle with a non-pregnant woman and riding a motorbike and essentially being cool and confident, you would think that Mary, his non-pregnant girl, would also live in that household as well. That's the weird bit. But it's the reverse of it, which to me kind of confuses the logic. And this gets back to the idea of 
you can be ambiguous, but consistently ambiguous or totally. logically ambiguous. There's that bit where, like, Helen researches Adam, finds out that he works at a college, and she goes there. But that assumes then that if all she knows is Anthony, then if Anthony and Adam are the same person, that Adam, who's having an affair with her, has only told her about one aspect of his life, which is the acting part. But does that make sense? So, yeah, there is, like you say, all of these bits and pieces that you might feel like you've figured something out, but then there's another scene or sequence or whatever that says, well, actually, maybe that isn't the case, which, depending on how you feel about that, is either incredibly infuriating or interesting. And that's the part about filmmaking, I think, where it's how you craft a story. And if you always stick with the hero, the protagonist, and you never show anyone else by themselves, the filmmaking rule then is that you're trusting the perspective of the protagonist. And that's the whole issue with the unreliable narrator. So, if you think of Fight Club, for example, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we ever really see any scenes or many scenes, do we, of Brad Pitt's character by himself, Tyler Durden. I'm not even sure if there's any. And then there's all those videos that people have made that point out, oh, when people are talking and Ed Norton and and Brad Pitt are in the scene together, they're only ever talking to Edward Norton and things like that. that- Yeah, that's right. Whereas in this film here, that scene you described before where Helen, the pregnant woman, goes to try and find Adam to sort of verify whether, from her point of view, there's a doppelganger of her husband and she encounters Adam and they talk and Adam goes inside – That entire scene is totally from her point of view, which then makes less sense with these theories that Anthony is a projection of Adam's insecurities and dreams, which frustrates the hell out of me because you could have actually shown- Adam doesn't know who Helen is. (laughs) So, like- That's right. Yeah. Which would be fine if he showed it exclusively from Adam's point of view, but- And then at the end of that scene, he goes inside and then you perhaps cut to Helen and then you reveal perhaps that she's actually- Anthony's wife. That makes more sense, right? Because we've seen it from his point of view. And then we think, oh, hang on, he doesn't really recognize who she is. So they clearly are different characters. So it comes back to this issue that I feel the rules are inconsistent. I will tell you one more theory, though. Have you heard the uh, invasion of the body snatchers theory? No. What? I mean, I heard that it, the whole movie is a comment on living under totalitarianism, which is like, yeah, okay. That totally, that, that's right. An extension of that is that. Essentially, there are spider-like creatures, perhaps aliens, who have actually inhabited humans. So, it's a bit like, you know, that old classic TV series V as well. And both these characters are essentially, as part of this process of creating skins for the aliens, then perhaps Anthony is a skin. And so, at the very end of the film, Adam discovers, unfortunately, sadly, either two things. One- Helen, his wife, is actually one of these giant body snatchers. <laughs> sure. Yep. Like a literal or, giant tarantula. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, you know, she's jumped out of her human skin, which means either he also is, or he's never known this, but actually he's been married to a body snatcher the entire time, or and she's given birth quietly and very quickly to a giant spider <laughs> in the bedroom. Right. Look, I'm not going to say that that's- wrong, but I would say if I want to watch a movie about aliens that's perfect for the hypnagogia state, I'll watch Under the Skin. Exactly. And that's a great example of body snatching films done well. So, tell me, what about the opening scene? Let's review that, then move on to the double. 
So, in Enemy, there's this weird scene which I described as something from Eyes Wide Shut meets Salvador Dali. What do you make of what's going on there? Is that some sort of pagan ritual where Adam is making a sacrifice or Anthony's making a sacrifice to create a clone or something like that? And this is what he gets the key to at the end? Is that right? So Yes. To be honest, I don't know. Do you or Reddits have a strong feeling about what that's about? Yeah. What's that film that you like? Is it called The Kill List? Oh, which Kill List. Features, yeah, great movie. Yeah, like a pagan ritual at the end. Yeah, yeah. A sort of paganish, all like a hitman movie by way of some Wicker Man-esque vibes. Yeah, it's actually, tell you right, it's a hitman film meets The Wicker Man meets Eyes Wide Shut with this sort of covert society minus the sex. So, I interpreted perhaps initially when I first saw it that this was linking to some sort of black magic. But actually, in retrospect now, because I think the guy you see at the start is Anthony because he has a wedding band on. Oh, okay. Yep. And I think this is basically just a fantasy. It's a dream sequence. I think it's actually as simple as that, in that Adam's just sort of imagining something erotic and exotic and a combination of like nude imagery, like a strip bar meets whatever the spider represents. And some have said that the spider represents female genitalia in an aggressive way, a bit like- Danny's got some issues because that's not- The spider's not in the book, so that's all his. Yeah, so apparently spiders, in some respects, do have an association in symbolism with female genitals, but in a negative way, like vagina dentata, which is- that phobia that some men have of a vagina with teeth. And so, apparently, in some cultures, spiders are demonised or vaginas are demonised like dangerous spiders. So, one interpretation from the Reddit threads was that the starting sequence there is him mixing both escapism, eroticism, and insecurities and phobias. Right. I'll buy that for a dollar. So, on that note- Why don't we jump into our review of The Double? Tell me, did you love it? Did you hate it? Walk me through it. I liked it less than Enemy. There is definitely things in The Double that I really like. There's a lot of little details. I love Paddy Constantine on the TV. I love the band that's playing in the lobby. I love the smash cut to Zuckerberg laying on the ground the first time he sees James. I love Wallace Shawn and everything. And I think the extras casting is really great. Like that, you really get the sense that this sort of weirdly set movie in this indeterminate time, that sort of bureaucratic Brazil-esque prison. Weirdly, I find it this one is odd because while Enemy is very open to interpretation, The Double has a lot more scenes where it's like there'll be Simon and James in the same scene and they'll be talking to each other and people will be interacting with both of them. But the implication is that they're still the same person in that when Simon does something to James or vice versa, like punches him, he ble- they both bleed. So, I don't know. I kind of found it less interesting artfully and less artfully made in a way, I guess. I really liked Richard Ayode's film Submarine. And oddly, this movie he made after that, but I really hate to say this, there was bits of it that felt kind of film schooly. I agree with almost everything you've said, which means this review might be quite short. I agree with the film schooly part, the last comment you made just then. 
for both good and bad reasons. So the film feels very indie, feels very contained, very feels very stylized. It's got like a minimalist sound design, so it's almost stage-like, play-like in its vibe. It does feel like someone's watched Terry Gilliam's Brazil 50 times over. There is kind of that whole idea of a fruitless bureaucracy, of pointlessness, of process, of an Eastern European or Russian sensibility in terms of its production design and the kind of Bundy in, Bundy out life of yeah. these characters. And the sort of seemingly meaninglessness of their work and the obsession with yes, you know, getting exactly. two copies and one copy and you know all that stuff. Exactly. I guess the key question is, so at the end of the day, if you've got to fall one side or the other, do you interpret this film to be about a doppelganger who's a projection of the protagonist or a separate character? It feels to me like he's probably definitely a projection in that, particularly the way the movie ends with, which one's which? Simon is the original? Yes. Anyway, the, the exactly. original Jesse Eisenberg jumping out of a window while the doppelganger is stuck to his bed and in doing so he sort of seems to like he'll get the medical attention but the other one will die. Unless they have some sort of psychic connection, it feels like they are both very clearly both parts of the same person. He's so outwardly confident and he's good at his job and he's rewarded. But it just, without the weird ambiguity of enemy, it just feels like it's just less successful at that. I don't know. Do you have a strong feeling about what is real in this? Yeah, I agree with you entirely. I think the fact that at the very end, spoilers ahead, where he jumps off as an act of suicide, a bit like in Fight Club, he's trying to, I think, kill off his alter ego. Yeah, very much like Fight Club, <laughs> really. I mean, like- it's pretty much Fight Club at the end, essentially, yeah. where yeah, the narrator, who doesn't have a name, puts a gun in his mouth to kill himself, but to really kill Tyler Durden, his alter ego. And- this is the same. And the fact that James, the doppelganger, just starts bleeding out with exactly the same head injury, to me, makes it pretty clear that he's definitely a projection of James's mind. I think as well because the film is so stylized, it's so absurdist, 10 times more than Enemy, it's much less naturalistic. It has more dreamlike sequences and more unrealistic depictions that, to me, makes it more likely that he's a projection. Yeah. It's interesting that you feel this has more dreamlike sequences. I mean, I feel that the double in a way, I don't know, it's that odd thing where you can, it's really hard to, without sounding kind of really mean, but the filmmaker is trying really hard. I don't know. Like, there's that sort of ease to Denny's direction of enemy, whereas there's a real self-consciousness to a lot of the design and photography and performance choices in this kitsch TV shows and music and all of these things just do you know what I mean? Hundred <laughs> percent. I feel like basically the director is a Richard Richard Aode Gadget Man Aode. I feel he's basically just trying to cram in every trick in the book, and the film I think is rich for that, but suffers because of it as well. Oh, interesting. Like there's a sequence when the funeral of his mother occurs at night time. I mean that's just ludicrous. From the start, like apparently in her will, she wanted to be married at, buried at midnight. Yes, yeah, sure, but that never happens. And so there's this bizarre sequence where everyone's gathered. And that's what's quite weird is like it's this group of people who don't even know his mother. 
and they're all gathered for this midnight funeral. It looks like something out of a horror film in terms of the lighting and the idea of this open grave. And he runs towards it, and the way it's shot, it's very stylized with a combination of light and the way that he's racing to get there in time before his mother's buried. That's just an example, one of many examples from my point of view, which is entertaining, but it makes it so stylized, it actually starts removing the stakes. And I guess to me, it starts feeling too clever so to speak. Yeah. And it's interesting because they're not really, neither this or Enemy are really movies with stakes in the sense of, you know, they're sort of, they're not really about that. But it does, you're right, it sort of serves as an impediment to just, I don't know. Maybe my problem is that I just love the way Enemy washes over you in an awesome way. The, the stylizations of the double kind of get in the way of that for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We've got to mention, by the way, there are a few scenes which, do confirm that James is definitely a projection of Simon's imagination. It's the scene where the security guard at the start, the same actor, plays a nurse or a doctor, I think? Yeah, he plays a doctor later. Yeah, okay. And that to me just is give away that everything's kind of pretty screwed Always up. not as it seems. Simon's head. Exactly, exactly. There is one weird moment when- when Simon is trying to convince, I think it's his boss, Wallace, or someone else, that James, his doppelganger, is actually someone who resembles him, and the other guy can't recognise it at all. And I think he makes some sort of comment which implies that James is of Asian heritage. Right. So, are you saying that maybe Simon sees James as a better version of himself, but you could read the movie as the person that he sees as himself is, in fact, someone completely different. He's just projected his own image and insecurities onto this person who possesses the traits that he doesn't have. Exactly. Right. Do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where this guy arrives at the power plant? Frank Grimes. And he- exactly. Ah. Frank Grimes. One of, the gr- Frank one, of, Grimes, one of the best. One of the best episodes of all time. Yeah. And written by one of the most obscure philosophers and comedians of all time as well. And Frank Grimes is basically everything Homer isn't. He's timely, he's motivated, he's competent, etc. And I feel in some ways there's a possibility that you can interpret James, who's Simon's doppelganger, is actually just another guy who started on the day and he's actually a real person, which explains how one interacts with him. Because this is a film in strong contrast to Enemy that has a wide cast. And I think one of the reasons why Enemy has a small cast is because it limits the opportunities for interaction because no one actually asks or talks much at all to either Adam or Anthony in the entire film, which preserves the possibility that Anthony is a projection, a figment of his imagination. Whereas in the double, there's a huge cast in comparison and the film's quite chaotic and there's a lot of interaction. So you couldn't excuse Simon's bafflement that why doesn't anyone realise how weird it is that James looks exactly like him? However, if it's a new guy like Frank Grimes and he's projecting his face onto him, it makes more sense. Yeah. And so, everything stands up. And then the end when he jumps off the building to commit suicide, that part, he's actually trying to, I guess, kill or excise the alter ego. But everywhere else, it's actually someone else. 
Right. I'd say that's the Frank Grimes interpretation is the most interesting one, I guess, because, yeah, I mean, that seems to satisfy a whole bunch of things in the film. I actually missed that line, so that's really interesting that you caught that and compared it to one of the greatest episodes of The Simpsons ever. Can you just imagine, like, say, someone like, is it Paul Travers? Who's the famous film critic? Peter Travers. From Peter Rolling Travers. Stone. Right. Can you imagine Peter Travers taking a film with the literary origins of the double and then just basically boiling it right down to the crudity of drawing analogy with Frank Grimes from The Simpsons? <laughs> I don't think he would. I would say if I was given a choice to be cast out upon an island with either every book written by Fedor Dostoevsky or every episode, fuck it, even just seasons two to nine or whatever of The Simpsons, mate, I'm taking The Simpsons over Dostoevsky every day of the week. Two things there. One, that's the sequel to Castaway, we must do. Castaway two, still away. (laughs) What a title. And two, I love the fact that you just very casually dropped in, specifically seasons two to nine of The Simpsons, which arguably are the best and, in my mind, only episode of The Simpsons and, in fact, I don't think I've seen more than one, two episodes of The Simpsons since season nine, which means I think we're up to season 25 now. And when I did watch the more recent episodes, they didn't hold a candle to seasons two to nine. Well, if not, If not, maybe two to seven. No, no, no. Wrong. Very wrong, mate. I will say this. Season eight is probably the best season of The Simpsons. And it's still good. Season nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, People like to say The Simpsons is no good now, but it's still good. The Simpsons has always been good. It just hit such crowning heights back kind of in the 1990s. Unimpeachable, unreachable, amazing. So- There's a window where Homer went from being a bit of a doofus to being ridiculously dumb. That was so hard to sympathise with him at all. He was just stupid and it was way too much, whereas earlier – He wasn't that intelligent. He wasn't that bright. But at least he had some traits that compensated for his, yeah, I guess just stupidity. All right, just quickly go favourite Simpsons episode. Wouldn't say favourite, but most memorable is the one where Homer freaks out that Bart is gay. Oh, yeah. With John Waters. Starring John Waters. Yeah, yeah. And I can't hear that song now. Everybody dance now. Ooh. (laughs) Ooh, ooh. Sure, okay. I can't hear that song without actually just thinking of that scene where Homer drags Bart along to the metal plant. Oh, yeah. Says, steel, steel Workers of America. Yeah, look at them. Big men. And then they start dancing, ripping off their shirts, and they're all oiled up. That is hilarious. Another part I love is when he sticks Bart on a deck chair to look at this huge sign on the highway for- some cigarettes called something slims. And there's a photograph of women in bikinis like having a kind of like pillow fight. And Homer's trying to convince him to be heterosexual and look at these women and just sort of like be attracted to them and to bury or excise any potential gay thoughts. And then at the end, after like four hours, he says, what have you learned? And he goes, I feel like a, I feel like a slim. <laughs> yeah, he wants to smoke. Great. Yeah. And the last bit to me, which you could apply to every prejudiced person, be it- racist, homophobic, someone who might be prejudiced or vilify other people who aren't them, is a final scene in that same episode where essentially John Waters' character saves Homer. 
think from a robotic Santa Claus or something like that. And basically based on that, the fact that his life was saved, suddenly Homer overcomes his homophobia and befriends John Waters' character. And John Waters says, and I won't get the wording specifically correct, but it was something along the lines of, well, if only every other person in America, I could say their life as well, then there wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, Something oh, yeah, like sure. that. But essentially, just a great summary as to how prejudiced people work. Like, they're prejudiced until they're not, but take something disproportionate and unreasonable to overcome their prejudice, which it should in the first place, but unfortunately it does. So that's my favourite episode, uh-huh. or most memorable. Yours? I'll also take an episode from season eight. I'm going to go with You Only Move Twice, the episode with Frank Scorpio. That's my all-time favourite. Simply oh, he's the, the one because of the based on Richard Branson or something, isn't it? Yeah, Albert Brooks voices him, and it's just magic. It is just magic. It's basically just a James Bond parody, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, like, well, sort of, to begin, eventually. But, you know, Homer tackles uh, James Bond and uh, then they kill him. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's just great. Anyway, look, we digress. All right. Well, let's wrap up the review of those films and- We'll do it a bit ass backwards this time. Why don't I do a bit of quick trivia for you about these films? So, starting with Enemy, can you recall the title at start? It says, Chaos is Ordered Yet Undeciphered. No, I don't. Right. So, is this a key to the film? Well, it potentially could be. A few other facts for you. The cast all signed a confidentiality agreement that didn't allow them to speak or explain to the press the meaning of the spiders in the movie. As if which they might did exp- it anyway. I know, exactly, exactly. For the scenes in which Adam and Anthony are in the same room, Denny used a tennis ball or stick as a point of reference so Jake Gyllenhaal would know what to look at. So, oh. pretty standard kind of thing. Yep. Both films, to be fair, do that pretty well, do their doubles on screen and interacting with each other and walking past each other, whether it's motion control or split screen or whatever. Pretty effective. Oh, yeah, it's very well done. And and the fact that they use motion control but sort of maintain camera bumps and so on, I think kind of adds more to the naturalism as well. Well, they might have tracked the handheld in in post and shot it much more static or something. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Another fact for you, Mm. the names of the two characters played by Gyllenhaal form both a clue to the film's interpretation and an ironic commentary on its difficulty. So, Claire could be interpreted as clear. Okay. And... A dot bell for Adam, clear as a bell, hey? That doesn't, it's not clear as a bell. Hey? I should have called, yeah, all right, sure. And apparently the spider walking through the city is a reference to Louis Bajor's sculpture, which is called Maman, which I had no idea about. I'm not familiar with that. And there has been talk apparently that- by film critics, that the spiders do represent Adam's or Anthony's weaknesses to women, making him less dominant. Well, so there you go. Sure, I'll buy that for a dollar yeah. again. <laughs> Bit of double trivia. The piano motif from the film comes from a song which is Der Doppelganger by Franz Schubert. So that's very apt. Apparently this film came close to being made by Polanski, Roman Polanski in 1996. Yeah, although... He sort of mo- made a movie that's riffed around these ideas with The Tenant. I haven't seen that. Okay, it's quite similar, isn't he it? he plays a man who moves into an apartment who gradually takes on the um, 
characteristics of the woman who previously lived there and had killed herself. Interesting. Okay. Well, when they came to make the film in 96 with Polanski, John Travolta was to have played the lead alongside Isabel Ajani, John Goodman, and our mate Jean Reno. And it only fell apart as days before principal photography when Travolta left the project after an argument with Polanski about alleged changes to the script, and so the film shortly collapsed. Huh, interesting, huh? Would watch. Well, not nowadays, but if it was made back then, would watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another fun fact, James Fox, playing the Colonel, is the father-in-law of the director, as he's been married to his daughter, Lydia Fox, since 2007. It was funny seeing all of these various people in the movie who you'd recognise from stuff that Richard Ayoade had done before. Yeah. People from the IT crowd and Garth Marenghi or whatever. I don't know if there was anyone from Garth Marenghi, but like his usual suspects popping up exactly. for a little cameo. It's always nice. Yeah, yeah. I agree. All right. Last bits. I think I mentioned everything except for the casting, woulda, shoulda, couldas. Apparently an enemy, Javier Bardem, was in mind in the early days, but it fell through. Now I jump to Spot the Aussie. Well, the cast was so small and enemy, I can't think of any. But in the double, there were two. Oh, is it? I definitely noticed one of Mr. Noah Taylor. Oh, of course, Mia Wasikowska. Exactly, two of them. That's billion-dollar franchise as Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. You know what the funny thing is? When I actually wrote that down as to who the Aussies were, I thought of Noah Taylor as well and actually didn't think of Mia until, like, after the fact. So, there you go. Now, let's do the box office champs. What do you think? So... This will be tricky because these films didn't get a traditional release. So, let's start with Enemy. I'm going to guess that Enemy pipped the double. Okay. When I read these figures out, they're going to shock you and depress you. And this is the nature of contemporary filmmaking. And this is in 2013, 14. It's only got worse in the last five years. Enemy, can't see a production budget here for it. I think it was around, no, I can't see anything at all. But Enemy... Made only one million US dollars at the American box office, plus two million four hundred thousand foreign for a combined three point four million dollars worldwide, which is pretty bad. Right, but do you have how many screens was it released on? Oh, I'm sure it was only like two or three. I think it says it was across, yeah, just a few, not many. And right, sharp so- contrast, the double. Right, no news there on its budget, but. It made a domestic gross of 200000 in the US and nothing reported internationally, so 200000 in total. So, I think it got a decent release in the UK, but either way, overall, 200000 versus $3.4 million reported, pretty dismal numbers. Right. But again, they were probably released in the US in one cinema in LA and one cinema in New York and nowhere else. Exactly. In fact, a bit of a correction here. The double did $2.3 million globally. So, not a big improvement, but improvement nonetheless. But, yeah, these films would have been sold for streaming and on TV. So, that's where they ended up. All right. That's pretty depressing. Let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes and see if we can pick up the mood with these films. So, have a guess which one impressed the critics and pumped up the fans. <laughs> Look, I guess that both of these movies would have been well-reviewed, particularly by Critics, I do wonder if the audience score or whatever it's called would be lower, though, compared to the critic score. Am I right? You nailed that. Now tell me, which one do you think did better with the critics, Enemy or The Double? My guess would be Enemy. So, Enemy did 71%, but The Double 
did 83%. Surprising. So more critics enjoyed the double than- Which really surprises me, yeah. Yeah, right. It's a big surprise. Does Enemy have a lot more reviewers? Like, are the number of- 118 reviewers versus 130. Oh, It's not that different. Comparable, right, right. Yeah. The funny thing is, I bet you if he released this film now in 2019, because of his reputation, it would just be higher. There'd be like a bias to it because everyone loves their Denny. They certainly do love Denny. And with the fans, have a guess, starting with Enemy, higher or lower? I would say the type of people who go and actually rate movies on Rotten Tomatoes, I'd say low. So, 63% with 26,000 user ratings compared to 59% with- 18,000 people for the double. So, yeah, higher than the double, but not by much. Right. There you go. Okay. Let's uh, jump to the awards. And there are some good ones here. Let's go with, first of all, best title, Enemy versus the Double. Look, I probably prefer the double as a title. I mean, Enemy is an interesting title for a movie. Is it the best title for this movie? I don't know. I thought this time you'd say you like Enemy because often you accuse me of going for the obvious title. Mate, I, I accuse you of that every time. <laughs> I know. I know. I totally. <laughs> so, maybe we switch roles in this case. Are you going to go for Enemy as the more esoteric, interesting choice? I don't like either title. I think <laughs> the double is probably a better pitch for the film. Enemy is misleading. I think it's missing something like Double Enemy or something. I don't know. But- I think it's a great name for a film. I just don't know if it's the best name for this film. I'm on the fence. Okay, I'll go for The Double. You? I agree. Enemy is a good title for a movie. Double Enemy, I have to say, sounds like another JCVD movie. I was going to say, you, exactly. Or First, they were friends. Yeah. Now they are Double Enemy. You know, <laughs> From his Suhark period, the awesome JCVD Suhark period. I'd watch the shit out of that movie. I know you would. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> After a few beers. Oh, before, during, you know. State of viewing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, best poster. Now, I've got to say, if you're going to have a film involving a doubleganger or a clone or a twin or something, it makes sense you might choose symmetry in your aesthetic design, which both these films did. For the listeners at home who can't see, Enemy basically has – their main poster was a yellow poster – with a kind of drawn character, very 70s sort of 60s vibe going on and sort of monochromatic colours with the outline of a person but a faceless head. It's very and 70s, that, that, isn't it? Because it's, got the, it's, it's even very, got the poster within a border exactly. and the credit block at yeah. the bottom. And the font's very 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And they basically then have a reflection of the character to imply there's two of the one person. And the double basically does something similar and it has a line going through the poster that actually divides it in half with one half of Jesse Eisenberg on one side and vice versa. So, which one did you prefer? Oh, Enemy by far. If I had 100 posters on – if I was hanging 100 posters on my wall, I would hang the Enemy poster. That is to say, it wouldn't be the first poster I would hang, but I really like the look and design of the Enemy poster – I would not put the double poster up on my wall. Although, as far as a piece of art to say what the movie is, yeah, look, there's two Jesse Eisenbergs on it. I do get that. Yeah, I agree entirely. All right, let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American indie actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck. So, who jumped from indie films to get their big break in one of these twin movies? (laughs) In one of these indie films. 
Exactly. Who leapt <laughs> from indie films into an indie film? Or who jumped from Hollywood large-scale film to an indie film? Yeah, that's I right. I know the answer to that. Jake Gyllenhaal, fresh from Prince of Persia. Yeah, who is slumming it in indie films? I've got Sarah Gaddon got a bit of a break with Enemy, having mainly been a TV actress before, albeit pretty extensive TV filmography. And in the double, Gemma Chan, who played glamorous judge, the replica. So she's gone on to be quite famous in Rich Crazy Asians. Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians. And what's the other one? One of those Marvel films. I think it's Captain Marvel. Oh, right. I have not seen that one. So, I don't know. I'm giving it to Gemma Chan. Okay. Props to her. Props to her. Well done. Exactly. Well played. Moving on. The Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them. Anyone jump out in either Enemy or The Double? Well, I mean, Enemy's only got really forecast. Or the people who appear in one scene, not so much. I mean, I hadn't heard of a little-known actor named Isabella Rossellini before this, but um, not really anyone in Enemy. Well, this is the Before They Were Famous Award. That's right. So. That, this, that's more like an After They Were Famous Award. <laughs> I mean, they're not really Before They Were I mean, was Gemma Chan before she was famous in the double? Yeah, I guess you say Gemma Chan. She's got two awards for Gemma. You know, All yeah. Right. And because Enemy has so few actors, they're going to be pretty pressed to try and win any of these awards because they're just simply less opportunities. But we'll see how we go. Gun home empty, handed Enemy. I know. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award for the actor who stole the show with a very small role. I had uh, Melanie Laroon. Laurent? 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 Who played Mary in Enemy because she wasn't in it much, but what she did was pretty good. Uh, how about you? I like Noah Taylor because I just love it when he turns up. In the double. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. He's one of those Ooh. actors. How old is he? Nobody knows. He's looked the same for about 20 years. Yeah, old. <laughs> but great. Real real good face. He's actually like looking his age now. <laughs> I think he actually always looked old when he was young and now he's like settling into his 50s. Yeah. I love it. Um, all right. Or, or look, I love it when Wallace Shaw turns up in movies. Oh, no. Save him for later okay, on. Okay. All right. We have that award. All right. Mr. Papadoulos. Papa the Dustin Dawson. Diamond Award for those that didn't kick on. We've got to change that award name, mate. This is your chance. This is your opportunity right now. This will be the fourth change you've made, by the way. So, this is you being very undecided as to who to choose as a sad reflection of someone who didn't quite kick on with their career. And just is there did, anyone else? Did they not kick on because they made mistakes in their personal life or did they not kick on because people realised that outside of the movie Twilight, Taylor Lautner should just not be in movies? I'm happy to actually accept both. The goal of this award is those who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in the film. So that could be because they just weren't good enough and everyone found out eventually which is the Taylor situation, or wasn't there a character actor we mentioned beforehand who was stuck in Canada for divorce reasons? Oh, Dave Foley. Yeah, that's right. right. Speaking of Canadians, why don't this week we call it the Freddie Got Fingered, Tom Green, Why Didn't You Capitalise Better Award? All right, the Tom Green, Freddie Got Fingered Award. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. I couldn't think of anyone. I think everyone kicked on, except maybe the director of The Double who hasn't made a film. He's all over British TV. But not directing. But not directing. But but maybe he's just- It's maybe just harder to get a film up these days. Yeah, very possibly, very probably. All right, so do we have a winner there or is it a case that it's a draw based on no contenders? A lack of- I'd like to give Richard Ayodare an award. He he is awesome. All right. 
So he gets the Dustin Diamond Award or the Tom Green Freddie Got Fingered Award. This week, Richard Aode is being fingered. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Who will get fingered next week? We'll find out. Will it even be a fingering? Don't know. Oh, Probably not. I think we really oh, need no. to change that. Uh, I've created a monster. No, we'll change right. it. The winner, winner, Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top of these films and was it their career high? So, I don't know. I mean, I think that Jake Gyllenhaal was going through a really interesting patch at this stage. He did this film. He was kind of scarred after doing that film where wasn't he in a film that was an adaptation of a computer game yeah, set Prince in Egypt? Persia. Prince of Persia. Please. And it feels like he went that process of then trying to basically, between that film and return to Hollywood filmmaking with playing Mysterio in the latest Spider-Man film, Far From Home, it feels like he basically rebuilt his career in that kind of Matthew McConaughey way through indie film to try and get back to his roots. He did Prisoners with Denis right before he did Enemy. Was Prisoners before, was it shot before or after? Was it around the same time? So, very close together. I thought it was before. Certainly on Valneuve's IMDb, Prisoners is- Listed as if it came out before. Well, either way, he did Prisoners, this film. He did that film where he played the crazy guy with the computer, with the uh, video camera, the aspiring oh, journalist. Nightcrawler, great movie. Nightcrawler. So, like, he had a great run of these films. So, I would say that this film was sort of in that beautiful purple patch there where he was just kicking goals left, right, and centre. Yeah. I think, in a way, the winners are the movies themselves. Because although I like oh, one much more really? than the other, I like it that these movies was made. I just like it. All right. Why not? So, the winner here is movies. <laughs> the winner here is cinema. Cinema. Okay. Hypnagogic cinema. <laughs> All right. Let's jump then to the Best Dialogue Award. Now, both these films are pretty quiet films. No, that's not true. Enemy's a quiet film, very measured film. I guess you'd say the double is pretty chaotic in comparison. But any quotes jump out to you as being memorable about either of these films? I mean, they're not, as you would describe, as like quotable movies. They're not like Scarface or something. But that being said, you know, Simon, it's terrible to be alone too much. Or his final line, I am unique or something. Yeah. There aren't too many like you. Are there, Simon? I'd like to think I'm pretty unique. You know, there's a certain irony to that or whatever, but- Enemy. Oh, man, I can't even remember a single line of dialogue in Enemy. Yeah, the other one I recall, and I don't think it was actually that funny, it was just sort of like a moment where the guy asks him in the tea room, a fellow college university lecturer, if he'd seen a film. Oh, yeah. And doesn't he say- uh, I don't really like movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like movies. And then after that, the guy says he saw a film, but he actually has nothing to say about it. That's great. Like, yeah, oh, okay. Like, so why did you raise that at all? Like, yeah, that was yeah. just amusing. It wasn't actually a memorable line, but it was a memorable moment in the film. So, I don't know. I'm calling that a draw. These films aren't talky films, so no one wins. No. All right. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, which I may add could be a juicy award, as we've seen Nicolas Cage in many films, including Face Off, when you're playing a version of yourself there's an opportunity to, you know, really go for broke. And if we had seen John Travolta in this film, I imagine we would have seen a crazy version. Actually, maybe this is one of the reasons and a very big paycheck why John Travolta did Face Off, right? It was an opportunity yeah. to basically do the flex that he couldn't do after he left Polanski's version of The Double. Although I guess Face Off slightly different because they're – 
Nick Cage and John Travolta are each playing both characters, as opposed to something like Adaptation, where Nick Cage plays both brothers. So he's really acting opposite himself. Yeah, that's a better example. On screen. And i got to say, as far as actors playing two different characters and acting opposite yourself, you can't really go past Nicolas Cage in Adaptation. It's pretty masterful. I've got to say, the best performance, or one of the best performances for me, by Nicolas Cage. And what's he doing? He's not hamming it up. No way. He's, he's pretty quite hammy as um, Donald, uh, you know. Oh, Donald. Is, is Donald the uh, the more extroverted brother? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's funny. He's not ridiculously extrovert. You know, he's not doing his vampire's kiss acting or whatever. He's exactly. still playing a character you believe as a human. <laughs> and because Donald is actually extroverted, then he naturally- to play against that has to play quite a version of himself as yeah. the hero, yeah. which might explain why it's one of the few opportunities we've seen Nicolas Cage play a quieter character because he has to, yeah. by the definition yeah. of those two roles, juxtaposed against each other. Totally. And he's great as Charlie as well. You know, he's um, sort of hunching his shoulders and yeah. being yeah. softly yeah. spoken. Really Leaning great. into the uh, the bald cap. Wig yeah, as well. that's right. His receding hairline and so on. Yeah. All right. So, which one? Anyone- Kind of going into ninety nine, I would say your mate Wallace potentially. Ah, uh, yeah, because let's give it to Wallace. But isn't Wallace acting like always like that? This is Wallace Shawn who plays Mister Papadopoulos, the boss of Jesse Eisenberg's character in the double. Everyone will know him as the character from The Princess Bride. Vizine. And what does he? What does he say? What's his famous line of many? Oh, like when he's making him drink the iocane powder or whatever. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. That yeah, that's the one. That's exactly. So, I would say him, and um, sadly, from my point of view, he's not chewing the scenery. He's just acting normally. He <laughs> comes across as chewing the scenery. Man, one day, they got to let Wallace Shawn off the leash. One day. Oh, God. So, you think he's actually not off the leash? Oh, man. Oh, imagine man. if he went to 11. Fuck. Wow. It's because the world's not ready for it. <laughs> that's right. The film would implode. All right. The Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself- was there anyone, anyone cashing a check in the double or enemy? Surely the budgets for these movies aren't high enough for anyone to be. Aren't they doing the opposite? Nah. Yeah. Okay. Who basically slummed it in indie film? It has to be Mia, doesn't it? Who's gone from doing the Alice in Wonderland films that have grossed, or at least the first one, over a billion dollars. Yeah, but her, her filmography is full of doing movies for people you might describe as auteurs, maps to then, the stars Cronenberg. Crimson Peak, Del Toro. So, it's, yeah, Jake so it's got to be in Enemy. Just all three right, years wins. before, he was all oiled up as the Prince of Persia. Right. Okay. The Stephen Toblowski Award, aka Hey, It's That Guy Award, named after his character Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So, who's the Hey, It's That Guy character? For me, I'm thinking in Enemy, it's Isabella Rossellini who played his mum, or Wallace Shawn. Who was in the double? I would go for Paddy Considine, who played the replicator on TV in the double. Okay. I had him in the next award. Okay. Or Chris O'Dowd from oh. the IT crowd, who plays Nurse. Okay. Well, I'm putting it down as Wallace Shawn for myself for this one here. But I think, can I convince you to try and put Paddy Constantine yes. and Chris O'Dowd okay. in for the next award? Me. Which is the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Mate, Paddy Constantine is a gem. So, you agree? Oh, I love him. Anytime All he turns right. up and stuff, I'm like, I have to lean over to whomever I'm with and say, that's Paddy Considine. 
I also actually really think that Melanie, what's her name from <laughs> you've, this You've film, just given up trying to pronounce it. I've given up Mel- trying to pronounce Melanie her French Laurent. surname. Laurent. Yeah. I mean, it's actually a really easy name to pronounce. I'm just tired. It's late at night. What do you call someone who's this- the opposite of a Francophile? Franco, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, see, I've got family who live in France, so I should actually be better at my French pronunciation than I am, so no excuses. But she's great, and she most people would know her as the projectionist and the uh, woman who escaped at the very starting sequence of Inglorious Bastards. Mm. But looking at her filmography, she's only made like 30-plus films, and that's all. And maybe it's because she – oh, no, actually, no, her child is now like 10-ish or so, so that could be a reason why. But she hasn't actually crossed over to American filmmaking like some of her European contemporaries have done, like Christopher Waltz, for example, who – is happily making a lot of American films. Yes. All right, the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nicolas Cage in Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Well, Anthony is a pretty ludicrous name. Who's ever heard of anyone named Anthony? Yeah, I know. Could have been Greg or Ian. No one really has weird names in these movies, do no, they? There's no one. There's, there's like five named characters in Enemy, so let's rule that one out straight away. Right. Next. And in the double- there's, like, no one. There's James Fox playing the colonel, but really there's no one else. I think this one goes down as being a draw yeah. for lack of competition. No winners. All right. The Memento Award, named for moments you completely forgot about until you watch these movies. So I actually watched them both the first time preparation for this podcasting recording. So rule me out. Are there any moments on rewatching it, particularly the Enemy, which you seem to watch in some sort of third mysterious state? <laughs> to be truthful, in given that the way I watch Enemy, there's always new shit. Every frame is potentially that's because you're new, half conscious. That's good. why. Oh, fucking a, of course, man. It's so good. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this and they have movies that they really like watching while half conscious. Let us know. Hit gave up. It's a legitimate way to watch movies. A Gire de Zondergotz, for instance, of Inventor's movie, perfect for it. Okay. I guess Enemy wins. And the last award is uh, the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre. If you say that any inspiration, I would probably say this is a concept as old as time, but coming up is Gemini Man with Will Smith. So the idea is not lost. There was also Looper as well, which came out around the same time as these films. Uh, so, sure, but yeah, I mean, but those films both have a twist that no one looked at Enemy and said, he like Ang Lee's there, and he's like, you know what would make this movie better? Big guns. laser guns, <laughs> guns and, and hitman, no artfulness, and yeah, no artfulness. <laughs> oh, I look at Ooh. that's not to say, shots Gem- fired. Shots Gemini fired Man might at- be incredibly artful. I don't. Yeah, know. the trailer looks pretty amazing. You know, <laughs> maybe. Okay, so come to uh, that time in the podcast, which is the. Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2. So, Gabe, imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Enemy or the Double. <laughs> okay. And they're both about- So, the exec looked at sequels? that $16,000 opening box office weekend and went, there's more money to be made here. There's a world to be built around this. There's a spin-off, right. perhaps. Right, right. So, first of all, if given the opportunity to make either a sequel to Enemy or the Double, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? Go. What do you think? Enemy? I think Enemy is the more artful, mysterious, interesting of the films. And just to be really ruthless, I think if we were able to get either the director back, Denis Villeneuve, or 
Jake Gyllenhaal, or even some of the other cast, it's got more of a chance of being a success at the box office than the double. No criticism of Jesse Eisenberg or Mia Wasikowski, but yeah. I just don't th- Wasikowska. Yeah, Wasikowska. But I just don't think that they're box office gold. Not that either of these films made box office gold at the cinema, but I'm thinking Enemy. But I'm I also having to do basically a film which could be a spin-off of the same world. So imagine like that scene at the start of Enemy, which is set at something, some sort of pagan strip club. Maybe there's another person at the table and we follow that person home. I guess you sort of got to make a choice about what interpretation of the film are you making a sequel to? For instance, I didn't particularly love the interpretation, but the idea that they're kind of body-snatching spiders certainly lends itself to making a kind of DTV sequel to Enemy, where well, you just lay that out much more literally. Like, it does turn out, in fact, that there's a whole race of body-snatching spiders who are turning people into doubles and subsuming their identities. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to do a film about a doppelganger, at the end of the film you discover, or the person discovers, the hero discovers that there's a clone of them and we find the reason for the clone. The clone's either actually a twin or an alien or a projection of their imagination and their insecurities. But there's probably good reason why there aren't sequels to films like Fight Club. Spoilers for those who haven't watched Fight Club. Because Chuck Palinhoek did write a sequel novel, though. Okay, this could be our way in. So what was the sequel to Fight Club in his novel or graphic novel? Oh, was it a graphic novel? I think it was a graphic novel. What was the basic premise of that? I think the premise is that the narrator is in a mental institution and Tyler Durden slowly starts coming back, maybe, I think. To be honest, look, I haven't read the the sequel novel. I had read Fight Club, but I think it's something like that, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And that makes sense. If you're going to have a second character who's a figment of someone's imagination, sure. I mean, you can't take their brain out short of giving them a lobotomy. So- that could make sense that the character comes back. So there's that. And essentially, perhaps like Fight Club, with Tyler emerging as perhaps either the narrator is healing or when the narrator joins the real world to cope with the real world, Tyler Durden has to kind of rear his head again. So there's that angle there. We could make this basically like some sort of film like The Joker, right? Where essentially. The sequel to Enemy is a supervillain origin story. (laughs) So, if you have a film where someone discovers a clone of themselves and the film resolves itself at the end, I think the angle you go for in a sequel is that the second film explores uncovering the mystery as to how they end up being the place or who caused this to happen in the first place. So, think of Moon, right? You go back to the person who started it all But if you do that, you risk making a film like Prometheus, which is more about the origins of creating artificial life and less about aliens and guns. So you perhaps risk being less of what made the film good in the first place. Or you do a spin-off, like I mentioned before, where if we've seen the characters grouped together by other characters, we follow another character, but perhaps his realisation or her realisation and journey is dramatically different, even though we know what's going to happen at the end. Right. If we were locked down on a a stepping stone to this sequel, what's it going to be? What are you like? Which of those is most attractive to you? Well, both those films seem to be about characters projecting a idealised version of themselves because they're insecure. And 
so it's a fictional clone. However, if you dive deep, deep, deep down into Reddit threads and read these ideas that perhaps the clones are alien body snatchers, so basically spiders and human skin, like that classic 1980s TV show V, but just trade in spiders for lizards, then you could basically have an alien film, essentially. And that could be a film that has all those journeys like V, where essentially, or what's that film that had that crazy cockroach in the sewers that Del Toro made? Mimic. Mimic. You have sort of a horror film like Mimic. So there's that angle there. I don't subscribe to that interpretation of Enemy, but given how ambiguous the film is and given that the director and actors have deliberately not revealed the true reason for the clone, I think there's enough evidence that you could actually lean into that if you wanted to. But now we're making a very different film. So it'd be basically be a sci-fi mystery opposed to a psychological mystery. Yeah, look, and I'd say despite making a movie that moves away from the fundamental thing that I like about this, I can't imagine that a much more sci-fi mystery one will be good to try and watch while semi-conscious. I mean, it's the sort of movie where you don't want to just make a another you don't want to make just a double of what you've already made right so it oh, probably makes sense to take it i'm in picking a, up what you're putting down there that's very clever a very clever pun it wasn't even a pun this is stupid anyway we don't want to do that i'm seeing double for crusties simpsons classic very good so yeah like why not push it in that direction i mean the sequel to sicario felt like it moved the film in a quite a different direction why don't we get in our own kind of you know, I mean, we could bring in, a, in an auteur or just a journeyman to do the giant spider inhabiting the bodies of people movie. Okay. So, we're going to go with – because the producer's looking at his watch now and he's tapping his watch saying, boys, wind it up. He's saying, why didn't you work this out before you stepped into my office? He has to step <laughs> exactly. through it here. Jesus. <laughs> fucking amateurs. So, we need to basically stop trying to ad-lib this on the spot in front of this very tired and frustrated producer and bring this home. We're going to go for the science fiction version. You gave the example of Sicario and its spin-off, uh, Day of the Soldado. Soldado? Yeah, Day of the Hitman. So, interestingly, also a sequel to another Denis Villeneuve film. So, he's rubber stamped these sequels before. He'll be happy with this. We're into a sci-fi horror mystery, and it's a body snatcher film. All right, let's go. Let's give it three quick acts as to how this will work based on the first film. <laughs> let's go. Same character? We're bringing back Jake Gyllenhaal? Maybe we are. He's up for it. Yeah, well, now that his double has died, he has nothing but to take all of the ambiguity from Enemy and now solve that mystery in the most kind of, uh, you know, not since 2010, the sequel to 2001, do we want to do a movie that kind of just turns it into something much more formulaic. So, put it this way. At the end, there's a possible theory that goes that maybe his pregnant wife is actually a spider in human skin. So, does that mean that our character, Adam, played by Jake, is also a alien or spider in human skin and now he's discovered that about himself? Thematically, we're continuing a theme of the movie then, I suppose, that uh, thematically a theme of the first film, Enemy One. Yeah, like why not have him at the 25-minute mark or whatever, find out that he is, in fact, also Spider. So, it's a bit like elements of Under the Skin with Scott Johansson in some respects. Maybe the premise of the sequel is that 
he identifies being more like human than like alien spider. Ah, and- so it's not unlike a movie that Denny also directed Blade Runner. 2049. And that's our way in. You got it in one. So, this is like a Denny trifecta. So, essentially, what happens when you discover that you aren't who you thought you were, does that change the way you go about living your life or do you kind of like throw your hands up in the air and give up? Or do you try and fully convert to be more human? So, if you find out you're a spider, you find out you're a robot, what do you do? Do you just sort of like throw in the towel or do you actually try and somehow just be human in spite of that splinter in your mind knowing you never will be? Yeah. And in some respects, the film could be an allegory for the way that people migrate to countries and they try to both assimilate but also maintain their cultural identity, which is a bit of a tussle depending on how much you want to be welcomed by your new neighbours. It actually feels like you've imbued this film with a level of thoughtfulness that I will now ruin by saying at some point he fights the huge fucking spider. You mean another spider? No, that big one that is going across the city that is probably a dream. Oh, effort, but okay. He's, but he's actually just a literal giant stupid spider and Jake Gyllenhaal has to, like, you know, fight it. Okay, how's this? End of Enemy. We're bringing this home. We've got two minutes left on All the right. clock. Right. At the end of Enemy, he discovers that his wife's a spider. He leaves her. At the start of Enemy 2 still enemy, <laughs> he is living by himself and he started to experience inklings that maybe he actually is a spider himself, but he can't project outside his human skin. He can't peel it off, so to speak. Then he just starts finding himself being hunted by these mysterious strangers and they're all kind of like bald and a bit weird looking perhaps. So they look a bit different and they're like a cluster of similar looking people, not as extreme as the characters in Dark City, the Alex Proyas film, not to that degree, but they look quite distinct. And they're chasing him across the city or stalking him. And the reason why is because that's the leadership of the spider aliens. And they realize, like in The Matrix, someone has realized that something's up or they suddenly have forgotten who they are. It's like the opposite of The Matrix, basically, right? Okay. He wants to be in The Matrix, so to speak. He wants to be human. And this is the Morpheus crew who are trying to actually say, no, no, you're a spider. No, no. So we need to, you need to come back and join us. Just be a spider, fella. And essentially he goes on the run. So it becomes like kind of like a chase film. And at the end, he discovers that the uprising is going to happen where they eventually will all slip out of their spider skins because they have the numbers now and take over the earth, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, thus un- unveiling their giant- bulldog of a giant spider, uh-huh. and he has to fight the spider with an umbrella <laughs> on the top of a building. He's got, he gets a giant, giant glass jar that he needs to position over the spider and a huge, huge newspaper that he needs to slide under the glass jar and take it outside. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I liked it when it was an allegory for- um, What did you describe it as? An allegory for- Cross migration. Yeah, yeah. That was probably classier. The version where he sort of they live like discovers this species, I would say, you know, it's interesting. And uh, how about this? You know, they live esque thing where he discovers this race of spiders. We would call it I Spy Oh, it's very clever. Okay, that's our title. Is it? Bring it home with the ending. What's the ending of the film? If the giant glass jar isn't good enough for you, mate, I don't know what is. 
What is the ending? He rejects his inherent spiderness, or he he does, right? but he can never be happy because he'll always be an outsider. He'll never be spider. Okay. He'll never <laughs> be human, and he will become the lead character in that TV show that goes from city to city, the pretender, just trying to help people out, trying to save the day. Always outsider, never spider, still pretender. Sure, okay. And and what's our title? We need a title. We're rejecting I Spider. <laughs> Yeah, we are. Oh, champ. We've already had iRobot and iPhone. We need something else. That's tested really well with focus groups. How about enemy? Oh. No. Enemies. Have we done huh? that? I feel like that does, does every time we just go, oh, throw an S on it, draw an underline, okay. put a dollar sign through the S. Oh, enemy. Spider enemy. How about this? He's a man and inside he's a spider, so he's man spider. That's <laughs> fine. We capitalize. It's like an asylum release. Some dumbbell who's been told to go rent far from home or whatever is like Spider Man, Man Spider, Ketchup, Ketchup. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make a sequel to Enemy, which we call Man Spider. That's how you get escorted off the Paramount lot. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? On Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick, where maybe I'll just put a big list of all of the hypnagogia movies I like, which I I love. I can't pronounce the term properly. Hypnagogia. Hypnagogia. So if you want there. to fall asleep or not fall asleep, <laughs> yeah. because that's the state you'll be in, <laughs> that's right. go to Gabe's Twitter. Yeah, perfect. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find this podcast and all of my other podcasts in the usual places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. And Gabe, my man spider friend, be good. You too.